action. Welcome to Torn Stops with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And author. And author, yeah, exactly. That's just been tagged on the end. And we're going to the movies to celebrate the release of Joshua's brand new book, The Shadow Glass, out today from Titan Books. We are deep diving into the best of 1980s fantasy and sci-fi and seeing what got Joshua's creative juices bubbling. <laughs> Joshua, it Stop is... Stop talking about my creative juices like that. <laughs> and how they're bubbling. Yeah. It is launch day. Is it always a, a relief to finally get a book out there you've got it past the finishing line so much so that it's actually landing on people's doormats as we speak it's always a real sort of split it's like a divided feeling where it's kind of excitement that it's actually happened kind of a bit of disbelief that it's actually happened and overwhelming fear that everyone's going to hate it <laughs> or or not even that maybe not even hate it but if people just kind of are just really indifferent to it, that's actually worse. I'd rather people hate it than just don't care. You've obviously given it to some people to read as beta writers and people who, you know, give you feedback. What's the what's the feedback been like? It's been fantastic. Obviously, I'm going to say that, but um, it's been it's been great. Like the cover dropped um, last August, I think, or end of July, beginning of August. It's such an awesome cover. Thank you. I was very, um, I was thrilled with it, but also just kind of, it was another moment where I just felt bamboozled by it because the Titan just did a perfect, amazing job. The designer is a a designer called Julia Lloyd, who does a lot of Titan's book covers Mm. and she's just so good. And I had no idea what she was actually going to come up with. I just kind of, I had to write an author sort of, um, brief I guess or like kind of like an unofficial brief that just basically said what I kind of think and I just assumed they would just not listen and what um, did you I mean what did you put down in your cover idea cover girl cover girl I basically did a like a little proposal because I'm a journalist and I'm a massive nerd and I basically kind of gave (laughs) them like five or six different ideas of styles that they might want to play around with and in the end they kind of took um one of, one of my main things was I just think that it needs to tap into VHS culture because the book is about celebrating mm. the 80s and v, VHS is synonymous with the 80s. Um, and a lot of these films that I love, I watched first on VHS as well. So it's all kind of tied up into that. So they took the VHS thing and then they said, what if we just basically create the poster for the movie in the book and have it as almost like a found object like it's this film that you've never heard or you've you've can't believe that you missed this film kind of thing um so yeah brilliant love it i just i'm so so chuffed um and yeah we'll see what everyone thinks about the inside of the book (laughs) (laughs) well i can't wait to get my copy i've i love walking into waterstones and buying books i can't Mm. wait to walk into waterstones earn my points yeah get those points get those points and buy a book with your name on i would never expect one for free (laughs) even i don't get them for free (laughs) i know i would never expect it like 
the the first time my my photos appeared to make it about me for a second the yeah, first time <laughs> the first time my photos appeared in an album inlay card i went up to hmv on oxford circus i walked in i bought the cd I've, i don't think i've ever played the cd because it's 2022 and i don't have a cd no, player how would really. you do that yeah I mean, exactly um but it's just nice to know that i've got physical media with my mm. name on it i've got all anytime my photos appeared in a newspaper or a magazine i keep them i might not yeah. look at them more than once every 18 months or two years or if i'm moving stuff around i go oh yeah i've got all this shit i forgot about this yeah but it's just nice you know we grew up in a pre-digital in a purely analog world mm-hmm. having you know being in the local paper it's like that thing in in dunkirk being in the local paper was like the height of local celebrity <laughs> yeah. being in the yeah. watford observer yeah definitely. when i was like nine because i'd won a word search competition that my my private tutor had given me um that she picked up from what from wh smith's in watford oh. um so i'd won a word search competition and you? I went down i did i know well Whoa. i found the words so they gave me prizes <laughs> i won a bundle of books there were three of us we all had our photos taken it was in the paper and my teacher made me cut it out and we framed it in the classroom oh. that, that was the height of modern you know the, the height of yeah. local celebrity back in the day my sister was interviewed for the local paper because she was the first girl to be on the school football team oh wow in the in, in the 90s uh-huh. it was a big thing big thing being in the local paper so yeah and people read that stuff physical well, they do they keep it they read yeah. it you know to actually have a physical book with your name on it yeah it must be great and the fact that you can walk into waterstones or you see it on waterstones shelves or or website or any of them any mm. of the booksellers any of the websites must be brilliant yeah it's completely surreal and you kind of think because it's because there are so many stages between having the initial idea and then having the book actually on a shelf um it feels there's a weird distance thing that happens um where it almost doesn't feel like you did it um and you kind of start to go did i write that did i actually write those words and it's bizarre but um it's lovely and brilliant and um yeah i can't wait to hold it myself it's gonna be it's gonna be great what advice would you give to a new writer whether they're young or old who's just starting out who's just thinking i really want to publish a novel Mm. where you know what do people do how do they start what's the what's that process like how do they start writing the book or how do they start well how do they go from having the idea in their head to Mm. being able to walk into tesco's and pick it up from the bookshelf oh man that is a big question (laughs) um i would say just write write whenever you can wherever you can um and tell the voice or just kind of laugh off the voice in your head that says you can't do it because that voice is never going to go away it's always going to be there no matter how successful you are um just tell it to shut up or laugh it you know just laugh it down and I mean, just take it, have fun, but take it seriously, you know, give it time. It's um, it's not something that is easy a lot of the time. In fact, a lot of the time it's quite difficult and you 
you just kind of think, why am I doing this to myself? But I think that um, all you can do is just try. And and um, I always I always kind of say to my partner as well, like every little counts towards the bigger picture. You know, even if you mm. one day you've only written five words, even if you've changed a comma, every time you open that document that has your words in it, any little thing that you do to it is changing it and improving it and moving it on. Um, so there's people who are molding that big block of clay. Yeah. And you know, you'll see people on social media saying, Oh, I bashed out a thousand words today. I've done tweets like that myself. Those tweets are probably because other days you haven't managed to do that. And so I wouldn't kind of try, don't measure yourself against other people's success. Um, and just tell the story you want to tell and, figure out how you want to tell it you know it's it's um it's your baby you know when it comes to sell a book is it advisable to write in a way or to write a type of story that you know is going to be sellable or Mm. what sells a book more the authenticity of it all Mm. or the commercial nature of it i think that it really is somewhere in the middle I think that the more you write, the more you will start to think in a way from conception of a project, if you think it could potentially have sort of marketability and sellability. And I think that you it's so frustrating and I've been there and I am there. Um, and it's that idea of, right, I've come up with an idea. I think it's really unique. And then a thousand people telling you that's too unique. No one's going to read it. You know, right. I wrote this book, The Shadow Glass, about inspired by 80s puppet fantasy films. And so many agents and people said, you know, the people who kind of were in the business said, that's really niche. Um, and, you know, who's going to read this? And I'm think I'm there thinking, well, me. And if I'm here, <laughs> yeah. there are going to be other people like me. Um Again, I'm speaking without the book having been published yet, or it's just out today. So who knows what's going to happen with it? But um, I think well, it's you finding... have an agent. So the agent yeah, yeah, yeah. had faith in it. The publisher snapped it mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you start to find ideas that have a marketability and you'll find people who, who recognize that. But I think that if it's not something that's written, if it's something that's entirely written from a business perspective, I... I'm not sure if that would work either because it does still have to have a piece of your humanity and, you know, soul in it, essentially. Is there a misconception that to write a book that is commercially viable, it has to be dumbed down? Um, I don't know. (laughs) It's the short answer. Um, Perhaps there is a sense in some places that if you're writing a certain kind of book, maybe it needs more explanation in it. You know, maybe the audience needs a bit more hand-holding. Um, but I I doubt that that happens much. It depends on how complex and who you're writing for, I suppose. Is there much from the draft of Shadow Glass that you submitted to your agent? Mm. Is there much different in that one to the one that people are buying today? um it's not so much so much as in sort of the quantity of what's remained so much as what's been fine-tuned i think um so 
the manuscript I submitted to my agent was about 95,000 words. And then when I worked on it with her, it went down to 87,000 words. And then when I worked that's on it... That's quite a lot to cut out. We did. We cut out sort of a, some... We cut out mostly sort of joiner, joining scenes, like the connecting scenes between other scenes. And often, I hadn't noticed this, but my agent is fantastic and scrupulous. And she said, well, actually... You could move the bits of dialogue that are important in the connecting scene into just the next scene. And she was completely right. And it works beautifully. So that's why it got cut down. And then the publisher then gave me their edits and it went back up to 92,000 words. So it's it's not kind of, um, <laughs> it's not um, changed hugely. There's just, it's very much fine tuning and maybe fleshing out certain bits and pairing back other bits. It's the same car, it's just got a few different bits on it. <laughs> it's got the same heart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like the beginning, middle and end have not changed, not since my second draft, which I submitted to my agent. When you, when you finally got an agent, because I know it took you a while to find one, it's the old classic, you know, mm-hmm. 40, no letters, and then suddenly you get a yes. Yeah. It's quite an interesting story because the, your agent contacted you and said, I want to tell you why I think I'm good for you, which is yeah. like a dream position to be in. Well, that was after I'd already submitted to her, but it was, it was just lovely mm. that she emailed me back um, to say, you know, I love the book and I would love to offer you representation and I want, I, can we have a chat so I can convince you why I'm the right agent for you? And it was just really lovely because you do spend so long breaking your back, sweating bullets, you know, crying yourself to sleep wondering why agents aren't taking you on and it's such Mm. the power sort of balance is sort of so out of whack so then to have to receive an email where it was different to that you know it was just sort of oh my god that's (laughs) that's amazing you know just really lovely very validating i would imagine yeah really it was it was yeah it's it was a great feeling it was sort of like i could breathe a little easier that that day and that week where I knew she was the perfect one for the book anyway. So then to have her be so enthusiastic. That one yes was more powerful than 40 or 50 no's. Yeah, but you can spend years getting no's and there's all kinds of reasons and they can be so frustrating. And, you know, last year or the year before last when I was pitching it out, pitching various projects out to various agents actually to either receive a no like a flat no or to receive a oh i loved it but it's not right for me those mm. those really mount up and um it's really disheartening because you that imposter inside of you gains power from that stuff even if you try not to let it yes yeah yeah because it feeds the monster doesn't it yeah absolutely it's tough it's really tough and but of course now i'm in the position where okay yes this book is out fantastic i adore it i really hope other people adore it but now i've got to submit my next manuscript to my agent (laughs) and i'm like aha right now she's going to figure out that i tricked her and now she's going to see the real crap writer that i am so it never goes away so what is this next book (laughs) (laughs) it's um it's along similar lines it's still a yeah sort of like a film inspired um story but it's it's more aligned with the horror genre than the fantasy genre. 
Okay. And that's all I shall say on that matter. And there's been no release date set for that? Not yet. <laughs> is the manuscript finished? I mean, have you finished the first draft? Have you... Uh, the first draft is almost finished, so I'm about to get that finished and then dive back into it and try to kick it into shape. Are you doing anything to celebrate, apart from this series, are you doing anything to celebrate the release today? Um, I'm probably going to watch Labyrinth and I'm not going to be checking social media every 10 seconds because that that way lies madness. Um, I might have a little glass of something, you know, a bit of bubbly um, and just probably just have a little flick through the book and just, you know, feel the feel the the good vibes. I don't know. <laughs> do you reread your books once you're done with them? Once they're once they're published, do you reread them? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes I'm sitting there and I just see it on the shelf and I um and I pick pick them up and have a little have a look. And it sounds that sounds really sort of like masturbatory or, you know, like self congratulatory, but it it's more like it's, and this sounds even worse, but it's more like and sort of like a friend, and that is like that. I hate saying that, but it really is like you spent so long with this world and these characters um, that it genuinely feels like you know a friend in some ways. And I, I know that sounds completely insane, but it's there's some weird comfort to it, I guess. When you read sections, do you? I mean, do you remember? what mindset you were in where you were when you were writing that moment yeah oh yeah lots of lots of my stuff I remember exactly where I was and I remember the feeling that I had when I was writing it and maybe the frustrations I had about the project or you know the joy that I was writing a scene that I was felt was really clicking yeah I always not the whole book obviously but definitely standout moments really are ingrained in my mind I always know where I was when I look back at photos i've taken mm. well i mean you can see where you are <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unless you're in a studio yeah. <laughs> and then, even then i can i can tell what studio i was in jeez i mean yeah there's there's a talent but i have i have a i have that sort of memory don't i, I always remember yeah. where i was when i saw a film first yeah that's weird i'm the rain man of cinema <laughs> i'm really jealous of my memory I'm really, I'm jealous. Like, I wish I could tell you when the first time I saw Labyrinth was, but I just, there's no way I could tell you that. Well, let's move on to Labyrinth. It is your favourite film. It is. It's definitely, I've definitely in recent years felt more comfortable saying it's pretty much my all-time favourite film. Why would you not be comfortable saying that? Because people give me a funny look when I say that. People kind of look at me like, oh, you're one of those. I'm not entirely sure what they mean, but I think that there's a sense maybe of, oh, it's a kid's film or, oh, it's like whimsical nonsense. And I'm, they're the things that I think are categorically not true about Labyrinth, but I think some people mm. perceive it that way. Well, fuck them. You've got yeah, a book absolutely. coming out because of your love of, well, you have a book out now because <laughs> of your love of Labyrinth. So fuck them. They can keep going to their mook job and going back to their boring <laughs> lives. It's way hard to die. Labyrinth. What's Labyrinth about, Joshua? Give us the rundown. It's so unfair. You're 14 years old and you're stuck babysitting for your evil stepmother. You could wish for goblins to come and take your baby brother away right now. That's what petulant dreamer Sarah, played by Jennifer Connolly, does. But after encountering big-haired, crystal ball-spinning, babe-stealing, goblin-king Jareth, played by David Bowie, Sarah realises she's made a big mistake. Huge. 
Now she has just 13 hours to solve Jairus' labyrinth full of riddles and strange creatures, or baby Toby will become a goblin forever. Such a pity. <laughs> um, so I don't, I think, I mean, going back on what I just said, I don't remember the first time I saw Labyrinth because I think I saw bits and pieces here and there. And I don't think I ever saw it properly from beginning through to end until maybe mm. 10 years ago. And then okay. only a couple of times since then. So I've probably only watched it maybe three or four times, probably three, probably two. No, it's got to be about three. <laughs> and I'm so glad we cleared that up. Genuinely, <laughs> I genuinely like this film. Clearly the, um, the I'm sorry, you genuinely like it, but you don't genuinely love it. Um, I like a lot of it, but I think there's some stuff in there that brings it down and it stops me mm. loving it. Okay. Um, but obviously it's biggest contemporary is dark crystal. Go and listen to the dark crystal episode of torn stubs. I think dark crystal. If you want, is... <laughs> if you want to listen to Rob completely missing the point of dark crystal, go what, listen to our dark crystal <laughs> episode. <laughs> well, no, because the problem with dark crystal is that there is, so much story that everything becomes exposition and they're so in love with their their muppet process and what they're doing technically that they get so bogged down in that that the film just feels so heavy with everything that it just can't stand up Hmm. labyrinth on the other hand has a very simple and very strong story and the characterization and the the writing is on top form yeah everything it's almost like a um, lightning really did strike that bottle well that's the interesting thing about labyrinth or one of the many interesting things is that you can really see the through line from dark crystal to labyrinth because i mean clearly there are similarities in the aesthetic and the way the world is mm. alive from the lichen to the rocks to you know everything the smallest little creatures are alive and um I think a lot Did of Dark the things... Dark Crystal come out first? Dark Crystal was 1982 and Labyrinth was 1986. Uh, right. And a okay. lot of the things that really work in Labyrinth are almost a direct response to the criticisms that were levelled at Dark Crystal. So it takes the, mm. the mysticism and the philosophy of Dark Crystal, but it adds in the music and the comedy of the Muppets. Um, yes. And I think that Jim Henson in particular was disappointed by the lack of the expression in the Gelfling puppets in Dark Crystal. So that's why he decided to Mm. introduce humans. And this time he really wanted the, the words, the dialogue. He wanted all of that to be really good because obviously Dark Crystal was almost reverse engineered. Um, It originally had almost no dialogue, which is just, but you know, baffling to think about. Um, only the Gelfling spoke and the Skeksis were just like making guttural noises and it was all just a bit sort of um, test audiences were just completely confused by it so they had to go in and add in dialogue to explain everything and um, and this time Jim Henson was like well I think maybe we should prioritize some dialogue and you know the dialogue in Labyrinth is so sharp so funny so deep and meaningful and interesting um that you know nailed it basically <laughs> nailed it nailed it i think the script is one of the strongest aspects here and it's the first draft at least was written by terry jones from monty python and you can absolutely hear that 
python-esque characterization and sort of banter between the different characters you've got the goblins at the start with the mm-hmm. the, the, the more high-pitched ones who are staring at the camera then you've got the one going what what did he say what did he say <laughs> what yeah not yet not yet then you've got the duo guards at the dead end you've got the the false oh, alarm heads yeah you've got the false alarm heads i'm just doing yeah. my job don't go I that way yeah i haven't said it for such a long time he sounds just you... like the head in um art attack do you remember art attack yeah well that's very terry gilliam wasn't it yeah and then you've got the door knockers so th- there's that that wry almost sarcastic sense of humor that threatens to undermine everything the film stands yeah. for but it doesn't quite do that because that was the genius of monty python they were very much about tearing down that fourth wall almost mm. and there's a great there's a great um monty python sketch where you've got a bunch of stuffy men in suits i think it's like a bank meeting or something in a boardroom and then one's by the window looking out and he goes sorry to trouble you gentlemen but we are all surrounded by film and then the camera cuts to them out. <laughs> the camera cuts to outside looking yeah. at the window as they're looking out and it's shot on film whereas the inside scenes are shot on on the high definition tape or whatever they used inside studio shots so okay. they're very much about breaking down the form of everything yeah. and yeah. this almost breaks down the form of fantasy film tropes by yeah. making a complete joke out of it yeah well fairy tales you know like there's mm. it's basically a kind of like a really cheeky subversion of fairy tales so like the the, the fairies are monsters that bite you and, and goblins yeah. can be heroes and um you know the first time we meet hoggle the um i think he is a goblin he's like taking a piss in a fountain so it's almost like this really grungy um, almost like it's weirdly realistic kind of version of a fairy tale, um, but without being gritty or you know serious. Um, and it's just really interesting because the, the the script shouldn't work. It went through like twenty five different versions. Um, the guy Dennis Lee, who's like a poet and a lyricist, he wrote the dialogue for the Skeksis and Dark Crystal, sort of mm. after it was shot, and he did his first pass on the script before Terry Jones. And um, his his version was very much like a fairy tale, very sort of whimsical. And Terry Jones came in and, and did the, you know, like you said, like the fun, sarcastic stuff. Um, and then they got in Laura Phillips from The Muppets to really focus on Sarah's characterization and her journey. And like Terry Jones and Laura, Laura Phillips's drafts kind of almost like started to eat them eat each other and you know she'd go in and like take out some of his jokes so that they could have more of an emotional thing and then he'd go back in and take out her emotional thing to put the jokes back in and it just went back and forth back and forth for so long until and a writer called elaine may came in did the final pass that just kind of like just ironed everything out um and that's what they shot but it's weird the way that all of that stuff sort of synchronized and became this beautiful balance of sarcastic but also you know very empathetic but philosophical but also sort of like flippant it just kind of it's this fascinatingly weird conundrum it just shouldn't work but it does yeah it does work this film until it doesn't and then it does Uh, again okay tell me well i'll I'll come on to that because you mentioned hoggle and i really question why is hoggle helping he is 
shit scared of Jareth, yeah. played by David Bowie and David Bowie's Bulge. Yeah, both very important. <laughs> but why is he helping Sarah? Um, is it because she turns up in this world that is so... Um, weird and upside down and everyone's sort of out for themselves and she comes in and she's just like this pure light you know she's she's nothing like anything he's ever seen and he just almost doesn't believe that she could be nice you know he kind of can't believe that she would actually not have an ulterior motive she's just trying to do the right thing and so maybe he's just drawn to that um it's sort of almost like perverse in this world because that this world is so weird and so out for itself and everything's mm. just bizarre. But she comes in and she's this, you know, she's just a, like a bright light. Does Sarah have an arc? You just mentioned that she's trying to do the right thing. Does she have an arc? Well, don't you think that she starts out very differently to how she ends up? I agree. There's a change. I just think the change happens within five minutes. Um... Well, because she obviously starts out spoiled, selfish, self-involved, bratty. very bratty. Um, she wishes Toby away. And then as yeah. soon as Toby goes away, she immediately realises her mistake. She immediately changes and she becomes a slightly different person. Like, I've got to get the baby back. Yes, yeah. she's still a little bit like, it's unfair, but she's a 15-year-old girl. <laughs> that's what but they I do. But I think that's... That's the point, though, I think, is that she may be going on this quest, but you don't get the feeling she's doing it really because she thinks she wants the baby to be okay. She's doing it because she's going to get in trouble. And so that's Mm. why she does keep going, oh, this is really unfair. And she's like really bratty, where she's like, oh, it's a piece of cake and all this kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) And he kind of says, oh, well, enjoy this slice then, you stupid brat. And I think that she does just sort of gradually learn not necessarily i don't know if she becomes less of a brat but she learns that she has her own power and that maybe she hasn't really been using it properly you know What's she keeps power? well she keeps forgetting the line at the end of the speech from her book which is you have no power over me and she's she's almost learning to sort of take control of her own life in a way that doesn't sort of um expel everybody else around her and it doesn't kind of um turn everyone around her into a villain who somehow wants to ruin her life you know by the end of it she just says look no one else has any power over me apart from myself so that's kind of the journey she goes on i think so her special power is remembering yes so she's basically peter k (laughs) she's finally got that script down pat (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's her name jennifer Connolly. yeah and she's great she she's, was like 16 when she made it it's such a physical role for her she does so much stuff that is just like she falls down that massive she's basically in wires that half of the film she's like falling in mm. one place climbing out of the other one um like when they're on the edge of the bog of eternal stench when the, the stones all fall down she's actually on the edge of that thing obviously she's got wires and stuff but yeah, and she's I just think she's great in this. She's so good. It's basically the Wizard of Oz, isn't it? Well, it's funny cuz in um in the ultimate visual history book that Titan did for Labyrinth, there's yeah. a, a note from Jim Henson 
where he says um this is the wizard of oz versus poltergeist yeah it's weird labyrinth would come out roughly around the same time as the official wizard of oz sequel the return to Oz. oh yeah of course and as much as i love the return to oz mm. this seems to be the film that has endured more yeah i think return of oz has its fans but they're nowhere near as involved invested as the labyrinth fans yeah there's there's people me included i mean there's actually probably fans who are even more fanny than i <laughs> fanny than i am <laughs> you know it's like the masquerade ball that they have at the prince charles cinema people get really dressed up i would never really do that but people do and Why they not? love it and that's great i don't know there's something about fandom i love it i love it exists but sometimes when i'm around people who love stuff as much as i do it makes me uncomfortable and i think it might just be because i don't i'm not really a competitive person and i feel like i don't want to have to compete with people to love something yeah i can get that and it's like no i love it more because i know every quote and it's like okay 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 that's fine yeah okay that's fine you you can love it too you know yeah so that's kind of why i wouldn't really do that and i think it's great people do it but it's not for me well, it might be that they have defined themselves or they found themselves so solidly through this mm. film or whatever a comic book a book a, a song whatever that yeah. any any threat that someone else might be better at it is mm. not just a an attack either consciously or subconsciously on the thing it's an attack on them mm. yeah don't attack my identity I guess that's why people get so riled up at comic book movie decisions. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's mm. like um, music fans go crazy over a band and it, it's like they all start tearing each other, <laughs> tearing each other to pieces. Maybe this explains football hooliganism. Mm, yeah, I think that's there's the definitely ultimate, a pattern. The ultimate fanboy. Yeah, yeah. Mixed oh God, in yeah. with pints of Stella and toxic masculinity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But so why, so this film flopped on release. It was a box office um, disappointment, as they say. Um, underperformed. Underperformed. It was made for $25 million, which in nowadays, nowadays money, I think 70. is about 67, 70,000, mm -hmm. sorry, 70 million, which still isn't that much money film-wise. And it made 12.9 yeah. million in the US, which was half, less than half what it cost to make. So why... Yeah. Why do you think this film flopped in 1986? Well, people over the Jim Henson thing. Jim Henson had reigned since the late late 60s with Sesame Street and then the Muppets mm. and the various Muppet films. And then suddenly this thing comes along that is a bit fantastical. It's almost the Muppet, evil Muppets for the MTV generation because it's basically at times it stops the narrative of mm -hmm. the film stops so that a music video can play one of them mm -hmm. has become very synonymous dance magic dance yeah. and it is a it's a great little bit of the film but the film does stop so David Bowie can dance around and throw a baby <laughs> around and yeah. then later on with the um, the sort of the red almost wolf-like creatures who can just take their oh, the fireies yeah the fire gang yeah that if that was removed then 
the film would play exactly the same. You don't mm. need that section to move the story on. In fact, it stops a story dead and you just kind of want to will it on. The Mask Ball is another one that is a little bit like, mm. well, this is slowing it down. They're trying to make they're trying to make a point here. You know, <laughs> Jareth loves the child and that's really problematic because she's a 14-year-old child and he's a 45-year-old man. But I digress. Right. Yeah, where he's 36, I think, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, is he 36 then? Okay. Yeah. But either way. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Either well, way, that's something we I, can definitely dive into. I think potentially for someone to watch it in the 80s, they would look at it and go, well, this is a big hodgepodge of all these different things that we will look back now and go, well, of course, this is just completely 80s. But maybe this was, maybe this felt ahead of its time in a really isolating way a really off-putting way mm. for audiences it was clearly trying to capture the mtv generation with the music video style sequences mm. but were audiences over these sort of wizards and princess stories by then look what was around at the time terminator or mm. you know john carpenter why would you give a shit about a child when mm. Snake Pliskin's over here kicking people in the face. <laughs> I think that 1986 was just a really, it's kind of a mess of a year for movies. Like if you look at the ones that were actually successful, aside from sort of like Aliens and Top Gun, which were among the top 10 films, the other biggest grossing movies of 1986 were Crocodile Dundee, Karate Kid 2, Star <laughs> Trek 4, Something Called Back to School starring Rodney Dangerfield, um, and Ferris Bueller, <laughs> which obviously is a classic. But 1986 yeah. was just such a weird film for movies. You also had Howard the Duck. You had Critters. Which also flopped. Yeah. Um, Howard the Duck. Notoriously yeah. so. But I do, yeah, I just think that maybe people just didn't know what this thing was. And, and for me, having grown up with it, mm. it makes total sense. But yeah, you could see how maybe audiences at the time were just like, so it's the Muppets, but not really. But it's got David Bowie in it. But what, what even is it? And I think and if you no actually went cute. to watch it, you would get swept away with it. But if you didn't get your foot in the door, you would just kind of dismiss it. I think. Yeah, but it, I mean, it doesn't have the, it doesn't have the personality of the Muppets. That's the thing, and that I think that's what held what Dark the Crystal brand back. of the Muppets. This is, yeah, I mean, this is a step in the right direction. The the Muppets are a sort of band of almost like raggy dolls. Right, yeah. they are yeah. very idiosyncratic characters. This this isn't the Muppets, but it's definitely not Dark Crystal. It's somewhere in between, mm. but clearly something isn't clicking. Like I can't imagine wanting to buy a toy if I was a kid. I don't want Hoggle. I don't want to hug Hoggle. Disgusting. <laughs> Udo. Yeah. Udo looks like he smells. I don't want the, the fox <laughs> on the dog. I don't want the fox on the dog. A parent would never buy Jareth for their child because of the obvious bit in the midriff. I suppose that is that kind of what you meant by subverting fantasy films because it's not tying into like merchandise for kids at all. It's almost doing the opposite where they're these kind of weird looking things that you don't really want in your house. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of subverting The Wizard of Oz in a way. Um, yeah. Or riffing off The Wizard of Oz. I, th I think I think it subverts in the sense that 
the the pythoness like i said the pythoness humor almost undermines because you know the door mm. knockers would normally be like um, you need to choose it'll be a really heavy yeah. serious moment instead it's like i can't talk because it's in my mouth i can't hear because it's yeah. in my ears and and yeah. what's the he doesn't know i don't know it becomes an odd couple situation yeah. in the same okay. with the f- can hear same- you <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it becomes you know it, it, it basically the this sort of humor would then set up the muppet movies that came later when they started mm. doing like the christmas carol or the pirates yeah. films when they yeah. took known entities and started undermining them with muppet humor so you can kind of yeah. see the footprint the dot being connected from what terry jones did for jim henson on labyrinth and what jim henson company would later do with mm. those muppet movies that seemingly when you say to people oh should we watch a muppet movie what you're actually making them think is do we watch christmas carol do we watch the pirates one not do you want to watch the very first Muppet movie or do you want to no. watch the Muppets Caper or the Muppets Take Manhattan? Because those no. are very different movies. They are very I'm not sure I've ever movies. seen those ones. Those are the ones I prefer. Some of them are, mm. there's some real dark and dingy moments. They're shot on the streets of New York. Yeah. Yeah. Like really dark and dingy. Like pre, yeah. pre-1980 um, or pre-1990 New York when it started to get cleaned up. Oh, when God, yeah. You could just get stabbed, you know, when the city yeah. was basically bankrupt. So in terms of 1986, I don't know where this sits. It sounds like 1986 was a really confused time. It didn't know what no. genre it was it's going all over the place. For. Yeah. Completely all over the place. But but there's still a lot to sort of latch onto here. There's still a lot to... in enjoy like what does this film say about friendship oh yeah massively like there's so many memes of ludo saying friend like it's it's sort of her overcoming her um that that kind of like first impressions thing where Mm. you just judge someone on their appearance immediately but actually ludo turns out to be this absolutely gent you gentle beast um yeah it's not it's yeah it's really lovely that everything it says about friendship is just really gorgeous and um especially that i think there's such depth to the sarah hoggle relationship it's so complex like you said like why is he helping her um he it's keeps really fucking her over and she keeps taking gaslighting her constantly it's a really fucked up relationship like he's constantly, he feels <laughs> bad for it because he sort of sulks away at one point you know with the when when he gives her the peach yeah yeah and what's in the peach has timothy chalamet been playing with this page. i know some gross uh, wormy thing that timothy, timothy chalamet left in there yeah it's wiggly yeah, dune I think it's worm lovely. in there <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a similar scene in um wizard of oz it's not about eating they they just get led into the poppy field and get high and pass out don't they oh so right, here, yeah here she imagines the masquerade ball doesn't she yeah which like, that's which... my favorite sequence in the film but it's so wrong because he is coming on to her. It's it's meant to be wrong. It's I've meant always, to be sort of... I've always loved you, wuzzle, 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 David Bowie. It's wuzzle, really wuzzle. inappropriate. But I just, I love that it represents sort of her nightmare, which is being a young person at a party she doesn't belong in. Um mm 
you know, Henson said that it's meant to be both attractive and repellent. It's it's that thing when you're a teenager where you feel like a grown up, but you're not a grown up, and you know grown ups yeah. are doing things that mm. you kind of weirdly want to know about, but actually it sounds disgusting. She ends up a party where the all of the people there are grown ups. They're all kind of like playing pretending to be goblins all of they're wearing goblin masks everything's oversized and depraved um and she's stuck in the middle of it and she's sort of bewitched by it all and she has to break free of it i guess so what's his motivation what does what does he want you know he says i have done all these things for you i have what's it's like <laughs> i've bent over backwards living up to your expect i'm tired of living up to your expectations so yeah. She hasn't expected anything from him. So what's his role here? Why is why is he taken this on himself? He's he's the ma- he is the the maker of his own undoing. Yeah. There's all sorts of um there's all sorts of like theories about him and you know is Jareth afraid of love? You know, she kind of he kind of represents this weirdly um physical grown-up to her but then for him she represents maybe like a you know beauty and and you know um romance i guess in like obviously in a fucked up way um but also i think that he sort of represents what happens when you don't grow up he's kind of a peter pan he doesn't he doesn't really seem to want to be king you know david bowie said the way he played him was that he'd rather just be out partying in soho He's bored, clearly. He's really bored. And she's this shiny thing that has strayed across his path. And he's sort of like playing with her the way a cat plays with a mouse. Just seeing what happens when he puts certain obstacles in her way. I've reordered time. I've turned the world (laughs) upside down. (laughs) Um, I think that because he is so much a rock star... And like mm. the way Brian Froud, who designed all of the creatures and a lot of the world, he says he represents the young girl's dream of a pop star. And he says, you know, we got in a lot of trouble about maybe how tight his pants were, but that was deliberate. So I think because <laughs> Jareth, because Jareth is so overtly ascribed sexual properties, I think you could read a really um, inappropriate sexual uh, reading into their relationship but I don't think it is a sexual relationship between them I think it's more this weird feeling of we're maybe similar but also different and you're what I could be if I didn't grow up and I think there's lots going on in there but he says just fear me just fear me love me do as I say and I will be your slave so what does he want <laughs> it's, it's back to France like fear me love me do as I say and I will be your slave. That's a head fuck and that's... He's, basically he's a pop star. He's, yeah, but... he's an, he wants to be idolised. He wants to have complete power. Mm. And that's why the only reason he can she can stop him is by saying, you have no power over me. He's like a false idol. He's trying to seduce her into basically worshipping him. Um, that is genius, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's so messed up. And as a kid, there's no way you would... I only just started to understand that about a year ago. <laughs> yeah. He's like the original Instagram glamazon, you know? Does it help that it's David Bowie playing it? And not just David Bowie. David Bowie 
in that period in the 1980s where he yeah. had gone through his almost indie phase. Then he'd gone through his drugged out in Berlin phase. And when he came back in 1983 and he did uh, the Let's Dance album, suddenly he became the biggest pop star. Mm. He wasn't a rock star, wasn't a musician. He was a pop star, biggest pop star on the planet. It's called yeah. his white soul period, his his uh, <laughs> moonlight. Oh, what's it called? Um, Serious Moonlight. That's it. I've got the tour program from them. Ah. That tour. Um, and then he did, after this, he did The Glass Spider. And it's, I've watched the live show. It's so weird. He's doing like circus things, backflips. So he was like the mm. biggest pop star. He wasn't, I don't think he was considered a danger anymore. Otherwise, mm. he wouldn't have been in a kids' film. But does it help having someone with that pedigree? Yeah, he brings, he brings so much to it. He, he just is like this glam, glam rock slash pop star. Um, and he, there is, there is a feeling of danger about him because he's in complete control at all times. Um, it's his world. She just happens to be in it and it's a really dangerous mm. world. Um, you know, yeah, it, he's, he's brilliant and he is unknowable. He's such a chameleon and he brings the weight of his own, um, off-screen persona as well so he's just brilliant and i just think you know they were thinking of having people like michael jackson uh oh, sting. No, that's just weird <laughs> you know that sting. would have been terrible no, sting's a boring old man <laughs> maybe and they michael saw june and were was... like mm, no strange yeah <laughs> he is i mean people often say that david bowie should Never have been an actor, but I've never seen him give a shit performance. He was brilliant in The Hunger. Years later, he is phenomenal in The Prestige. Yeah, he's just just really intelligent. You can see how clever he is. And Mm. just watching him be interviewed. And there's fascinating interviews that are just coming to light now in like the post-woke world where he's talking about technology and how we're gonna all have phones and stuff like this and he was giving interviews like this in the 80s Mm. and people were kind of going oh that fucking mentalist and um now it's like (laughs) and he was talking about the internet he was talking about the internet before it happened he's saying you know the world's going to get more and more connected and all this kind of stuff and the interviewer is just like what a crazy person but he knew he was so clever yeah he was talking about how um people are going to start buying music online and we should all yeah. get ahead of the curve otherwise the music industry is gonna crumble and look what yeah. happened it did yeah how do you see a sequel happening yeah i just can't see how that would work because it's sort of it's so such a complete story and also i think that any i know that graphic novels have been written that kind of fill in jareth's backstory and i think there actually is a sequel graphic novel about toby a grown-up toby um which yeah i mean okay cool but i just think that if if you demystify a lot of these things it just makes them a lot less interesting if you if you add backstories for like yeah. the worm and you know things like that i just don't know what that adds and i think that like any time you have a sequel it has to be something completely different you know, look at Terminator and Terminator 2, completely different films, Alien, Aliens. I mean, get yeah. James Cameron to come and do Labyrinth 2. I would watch that in a heartbeat because I know that he would do something. <laughs> if you imagine like Sarah with a machine gun <laughs> just going into the Labyrinth. Writer, director, 
and podcaster Mark Bernardin said that a Labyrinth sequel shouldn't necessarily be about Jareth because they mm. would obviously have to recast and it would probably be Tilda Swinton. But yeah, it should be about Sarah and she is the new Goblin King. Oh, yes, I did read that. Yeah, that's an interesting proposition to me because then you have to answer questions of well how does she go from being this reformed character at the end to being basically everything i hate yeah well it'd be like the the laurie strode thing like how did laurie end up an alcoholic in h2o after seemingly defeating her monster in the 80s yeah well trauma yeah that's trauma so is it going to be that toby's going to have to go and save sarah from Mm. herself that sounds a bit like Frozen to me. <laughs> Is that what Frozen's about? I can't. I haven't seen Frozen since it's the about, cinema. Yeah, it's about a sister going off and isolating herself because she thinks she's a weirdo and then her sister comes and saves her. She just needs to let it go. I say go out all out like body horror because I think this film actually <laughs> is a lot about weird body imagery. You know, you've got the tunnel of hands, you've got the lichen with eyes, you've got mm. the fire gang that literally pull their body parts off. Yeah, it's all kind of, it's all about bodies. And obviously that you can tap into like, she's a teenager, her body is doing weird things. Um, I don't want to see a sequel. I just want to watch this one over and over again forever. So let's talk about how Labyrinth is connected to the Shadow Glass and vice versa. I mean, the obvious thing is puppets. (laughs) I mean, there's some puppets in the the Shadow Glass, yeah. I think there is, because re-watching Labyrinth yesterday for the podcast, I kind of realised just how much it did influence the shadow glass in like so many different ways i would be here for hours trying to explain them all but i didn't study labyrinth before writing the shadow glass i didn't read up on it Mm. loads i did like the tiniest bit of research where i flipped through titan's ultimate visual history book about labyrinth and dark crystal i didn't read loads about them though i just sort of looked for visual inspiration um so i think a lot of it is almost like subconscious I was wary of not trying to rip everything off because there's no joy in that. Did you make valiant efforts? Did you like set out and say, well, I can feel my story going this way, but that is far too much like Labyrinth. Let me put it back and go in a different way, but have it organically go in another way. Well, there was definitely a moment where I felt like the sort of the later chapters of the book may maybe should take place in some kind of sort of like puzzle house, maybe some like that maybe some kind of nod to the labyrinth to have like a puzzle house, but actually so I, the big it was too much and it was too much, it was too similar. So I ditched that. So there were little moments, but mostly I think, I hope I came up with my own stuff. Um, mm. But there are, there's nods in there. You know, there are characters that are hugely inspired by um, certain things from Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. There are lines of dialogue that I've hidden away in there as well. But the main thing really the main inspiration was when I discovered that this amazing, gorgeous film that I loved, Labyrinth, was actually considered a flop at the time. That was so shocking to me because I'd grown up watching it over and over and over again on video and I absolutely adored it and I wanted more of it. I wanted more films like it. And Jim Henson said, basically, I want this film to be successful so I can keep doing this. And when I found out, not only was it not successful, it was his last film and that it basically mm. broke broke his heart a little bit, that it didn't work out. That 
sort of left me feeling sort of heartbroken for him as well you know because this thing that's just so great i couldn't believe that people couldn't see what i had seen and luckily it did become a cult hit and his son brian henson who did work on labyrinth with him he said i wish my father could have lived to see the audience's incredible undying love for labyrinth and i just found that idea so deeply affecting that that's why i decided to write a story about a filmmaker whose puppet film flops and what happens to that person how does that affect them and how does it affect their relationships in their life and how do you make sort of make um, peace with that I guess um, so that was like the the big the big thing that inspired me was not the film itself but the story about the film and not to go on too much but I think that's perhaps why people remain obsessed with Labyrinth is because I think the making of the film is equally as interesting as the actual film itself. Just how much went into it and all the things that they did to make this world for us. You know, so that's why this my my book is about a film, the making of the film rather than the story of the film, essentially. Any plans to get a copy sent over to Brian Henson? <laughs> I mean, that would be the dream, wouldn't it? We will see. I'm terrified he'd be like, no, you've ripped off my father. <laughs> no he's not that's that. my biggest fear <laughs> yeah it's like well i didn't I've, i like to think of it as an homage rather than a ripoff do you think jim would have liked it jim henson i really hope so i really really hope he would i hope that he would see that i was that i love his world i love what he did and that anything that i have done is only a reflection of that um rather than anything else you know i i've I couldn't have written this book if it was because I wanted to um, exploit anything he had done. I did it purely out of love and purely because I wanted more films like Labyrinth and nobody's making them. Nobody's Mm. writing these stories. And so I just thought, well, I'm going to bloody well do it then. So I would hope that in some very, very, very modest way, I'm, you know attempting to keep his legacy alive by doing my own thing over here inspired by him massively inspired you remember me as a babe babe with the power that was labyrinth directed by jim henson Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up in the next episode. Is it a goat? Is it a tiger? Is it a crow? Let's find out. And you can find out by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast so you don't miss that episode. And we're on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Come and let me know how much you love Labyrinth and let us know when was the first time you saw it. Let us know your Labyrinth origin story. And let us know how you feel about Joshua's book, which is out today. It's called The Shadow Glass in all good bookshops. Hooray. From the mighty Titan. The Labyrinth book is published by Titan. You are published by the same publisher who's published the Labyrinth book. <laughs> I know, that's. I still can't get my head around that. I'm, I feel very, very lucky. We are off to find the babe. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Cut. My baby, trying hard as they could try. What could I do? My business fun have gone and left my baby.